Hey there, I'm so excited to tell you about Radiotopia's newest show, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Kenji and Deb are two of the best home cooks alive. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Food Lab and The Walk, and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. Two of my go-tos to make sure I'm getting the perfect recipe for everything from meatballs to muffins. They're pros who obsess over techniques and essential ingredients, so you learn everything you need to create your perfect recipe. You can finally be excited to eat what you make, and maybe even impress your friends and family. Help us welcome the newest show to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb on your favorite podcast platform starting February 26th. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, home of the Name Your Price tool. You say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. It's easy to start a quote. Visit Progressive.com to get started. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to This Day in Esoteric Political History from Radiotopia. My name is Jody Avergan. This day, September 13, 1988, Democratic presidential candidate Michael Dukakis was touring a General Dynamics plant that assembled the M1 battle tank. During his tour, his press team arranged for him to put on a green helmet and military coveralls over his suit and kind of ride the tank around for a bit on the assembly plant. The cameras were rolling, photographers were clicking away, and the next day, an image of Dukakis aboard the tank with the helmet kind of like plopped down over his head, this big goofy smile on his face. That image was everywhere, and many of you are probably seeing this image in your head right now. It kind of came to define Dukakis in many ways. So here to talk about the tank photo, how it very likely contributed to his blown lead and eventual loss to George H.W. Bush. And in general, the question of optics, blown leads, how photo ops can go very, very wrong. Here with us is Nicole Hammer of Columbia. As always, hello, Nikki. Hello, Jody. And our special guest, we're very excited to have her on, Amy Walter, national editor of the Cook Political Report, host of Politics with Amy Walter from WNYC's Takeaway. It's a Friday political show, which I really, really love, Amy. So thank you for coming on and thank you for doing this. Oh, I'm so excited. Thanks, Jody. So there's a lot of uh, facts here to get to. But Amy, I, I mean, the one thing that jumps out to me is, you know, we're doing this on uh, September 13th. I'll say that the ad that focused in on this photo didn't run uh, nationally until October 18th. I mean, this seems late. And to me, it's like a kind of reminder of the things that we remember from as defining political campaigns. A lot of those happen a lot later than we seem to remember when we think of campaigns as taking forever and ever and ever. I know. And to think that a a campaign would sit on this for a month, right? And the reality of what it meant to even, I think, just produce an ad. Now you can do it in, you know, 15 minutes from your laptop and it doesn't have to go through like the challenge of of making it as you did back in 1988, like the physical realities of putting an ad together. But I think it also, you know, highlighted this other piece, Jody, that you pointed out, which is, you know, folks really not keying in on the election until October. That, yes, these elections went on just as they do now with, you know, you have conventions and you have candidates going out and about on the hustings all throughout the year, but that folks were paying attention, regular voters in October And you didn't want to spend too much time in September talking to people who weren't paying attention. 
Yeah, this idea of the perpetual campaign where road to the White House specials start like the day (laughs) after Election Day four years earlier. I mean, that is a relatively recent phenomenon, this idea that voters are so tuned into politics that they just want that stuck into their arm via IV really, really early. (laughs) You don't have the same kind of 24-7 cable news, like CNN is only eight years old at this point. It still hasn't really figured out how to fill up all 24 hours. Um, So there are a lot of changes on the horizon for campaigning, and we're just not there yet in 1988. Listeners, you should just make a list in your head of what you think of as the most sort of defining campaign changing moments. And I almost guarantee all of them happened in late September through late October. Um, So it is true that this stuff hits late. I also feel like it's important to point out that the stuff that hits hits because it's sort of landing in fertile ground. And that ground has been sort of tilled over the course of months and months and years and years. So those years of campaigning kind of matter. But then the actual specific thing that we remember and feels like, oh, it changed the campaign like this photo. So, yeah, happened happen really late. Um, so maybe, Amy, we can talk a little bit about that and, and about the, the photo itself. I mean, one thing that's interesting to point out is this wasn't necessarily like a gaffe. This was an attempted photo op on the part of the Dukakis right. folks, right? Yeah. And again, we forget in 1988, one of the top issues was the Cold War. And on that front, when you looked at the polling, um, Dukakis really was very far behind Uh, George H.W. Bush on the question of, you know, who do the best job on defense issues. So if you're thinking tactically as the Dukakis campaign, you say, well, we're ahead in the polls, but we have a really clear weakness, and that's on security issues and on defense issues. And remember, Dukakis was a governor, so he didn't have that sort of national foreign policy experience that, you know, other candidates have had. So you say, all right, Let's go do something that makes us look tough on security. It makes kind of perfect sense. But the other thing to note about Dukakis is, you know, he went into the fall campaign after the primaries, not particularly well-known or well-defined. And as Nikki pointed out, you know, we, we think now of the fact that by the time we get to election day, we've had four years of road to the White House coverage and everybody knows everything about these folks by the time the fall hits. But back in 1988, you know, Michael Dukakis, I think part of the reason he was leading by the degree that he was over Bush was that he was just a sort of a stand-in for change, right? We've had eight years of Republicans. It's kind of time to give Democrats a shot. And people didn't know a lot about who this guy was, who was the Democratic nominee. Yeah, it's really hard to imagine it being like August and September and voters not really knowing much about one of the major (laughs) party candidates. But that was, in fact, the case. And it's sort of like as people get to know Dukakis, they move more and more towards Bush, in part because the Bush campaign has two people on its side who are doing a bang up job of defining Dukakis in negative ways. And that is Lee Atwater, who makes these notorious political attack ads, and Roger Ailes. And if you leave the field to Ailes and Atwater to define (laughs) your candidate, your candidate is going to lose a lot of points in likability because they just attacked, attacked, attacked. And Dukakis never really got it together to respond Mm -hmm. well. Like this photo op is not going to be an effective response to all of these ads pouring out of the Bush campaign. Mm. So just to put some numbers to that, I mean, Dukakis had a 55-38 lead in July. 
by early August, it was down to seven points. By Labor Day, Bush had overtaken Dukakis. Bush ended up winning by about eight points. So it is this remarkable collapse or switch. And, and you know, when you compare it to other elections and even current elections and say, wow, can, you know, can a lead like this erode? I think, Amy, your point about name recognition and do people know the candidate is probably the critical issue here. And in, in certainly the 2020 election, um, both candidates are relatively known quantities at this point. Um, I do want to stay on the photo a little bit for a second. And I think we can do mm-hmm. a little like analysis of, of sort of why it played the way it played. Um, one thing that's interesting is that, you know, Dukakis's people I think, and you read about how this came together, they were aware of the risk here. So one thing they did, right, Dukakis, I think, was 5'8", uh, not a very tall person. And so they had, they decided to have him climb onto the tank inside the hangar away from the cameras because they understood that there was maybe some, like, goofy optics there where this, you know, relatively short person climbing onto a big tank. They, they sort of saw that. For some reason, they did not anticipate that then, like, the helmet would be too big or the grin would be too So let's engage in this. What is, <laughs> what is Amy and Nikki, what is so goofy about this photo? I think, Joe, you're right that there's something about the grin, right, with the helmet that it looks like if, if your goal is – I am a badass, right? I'm on a tank with (laughs) guns and I can blow stuff up. Like you want to look like a dude that's going to blow stuff up, right? And that's not what he's looking like right here. Like what you would want in the heart of the, I hope the Russians love their children too era (laughs) um, by Sting. People remember that. Um, You know, it's like Soviets are bad. And I'm going to go out there personally and drive my tank over them. But no, that's not what this looks like. Which was a very like Reagan-esque kind of thing. Mm. Remember those um, posters of Ronald Reagan in the 1980s of Ronald Reagan's face imposed over Rambo's body? Like that was the kind (laughs) of image that the sort of militaristic set wanted, right? They wanted a Rambo. And instead look, Dukakis looks a little bit like a kid getting to play on a tank, which is not great. And the thing is, Dukakis served in the military. It wasn't that he needed to prove Mm -hmm. these kinds of credentials. He enlisted in the army instead of going to Harvard Law School. Like he had the right credentials. um, But here, the photo op kind of undermined his CV. Right. But if you think about the the moments when presidents have kind of tried to do something like this. I mean, I think of Bush and Mission Accomplished, and certainly there was more going on there than just the photo op nature of it. But certainly, you know, Bush like dressing up, playing dress up a little bit and landing on an aircraft carrier and giving that speech. Yeah. I think there's an o- Obama, like many years later, someone asked him about the caucus and he basically said, don't put stuff on your head if you're president. Uh, and, you know, so I wonder if... It's is there, Very I mean, good you know, advice. It's probably good advice. And here, I mean, it's like, don't play dress up if you're president. If you're president or trying to run for president, I mean, is that kind of one of the lessons here, or are there other moments where that has worked? I think you know the lesson to take is you've got to be who you are, right? And if you're trying to make up for a deficit that you have, you can try to do whatever you can to prove that opinions about you on this issue are wrong. No, I am really compassionate. No, I am really tough and strong. Or what you do is you lean into the other things that you are really good at. And if you're Dukakis, as Nikki said, it's like, I have served in the military. I do have certain experiences here. That looks more authentic, right? right? Here I am in my military room. Here I am in doing service rather than trying to create some sort of 
moment. And mm -hmm. the best political moments on a campaign trail are those that really get to the essence of who this person is. Yeah, it's a kind of like modified authenticity. You want the candidate <laughs> to be authentic, um, but authentic in ways that serve the campaign. So you definitely want to avoid anything that feels just really not part of the person's character, but you can't just let them run free without any kind of modifications because, you know, optics ultimately do have some sway over voters. That's where that John Kerry photo at the end of the 2004 campaign when he's out with hunters wearing his <laughs> orange vest and, you know, it looks like literally he just went or some staffer went to the store like five minutes beforehand. It's still like creases in it and the price tags on it. <laughs> and, and again, this is a guy who served in the military, right? So it's not like he's never handled a gun, but I think it looked so hackneyed and so staged, right? Like yeah. John Kerry does not go hunting for ducks or whatever <laughs> they were hunting, you know, and it's okay. You don't have to right. just right. don't do that. Yeah, you know, it's almost like something I think about, not to compare what we do to running for a president, but it's almost like something that when you're a journalist or you do radio or you go on TV or whatever, um, I often think about what you want to be doing is performing the most authentic version of yourself, right? You kind of have to really understand who you are, but then there's some artifice to it. You have to perform it. And I think that's kind of what we're getting at here with the candidates. They really do have to understand themselves and try and do stuff that feels authentic, though obviously political races are very artificial environments. Um, so I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the Dukakis-Bush campaign in general. And in particular, you know, looking back at the whole election, um, it does seem like the way that Bush went after Dukakis really shows all the different kinds of oppo research and kind of attack ads that one can put together over the course of a campaign. So obviously we have this tank photo which kind of fell into their lap and they made hay with it. And as you mentioned, Nikki, you know, Roger Ailes in particular knows how to jump on those moments. We've also mentioned the Willie Horton ad, which I think, you know, is something that was researched and kind of turned into a story. This, of course, was the story of a prisoner, Willie Horton, who had been furloughed by a program that Dukakis had in Massachusetts. He then went on to rape a white woman while he was on furlough. And, and this ad notoriously played up the racial elements of the Willie Horton story, in addition to sticking Dukakis with the soft on crime label. So, Amy, we kind of have two kinds of oppo research or two kinds of attack ads going on there. And I'm wondering if you can talk about which is more effective, how you deploy each one, and has the nature of oppo changed in the years since? Um, really good point, because I think if you get right down to it and ask uh, folks who are involved in that campaign, which had the bigger impact, Willie Horton or the tank, the Willie Horton ad would have had the most sort of searing right. impact. And I think even those who were around at that time would tell you that we knew it would have an impact. But the fact that you already had a Michael Dukakis who the campaign of George Bush was setting up to be kind of weak and liberal and Boston and all of those things, right, that just say this guy is not going to be tough enough. And then you run the Willie Horton ad, which sort of feeds into those other attacks that you've made, right? If this guy looks goofy on a tank, if this guy is kowtowing to the ACLU, if this guy is little and not very 
tough looking. How is he going to be a strong enough president? And then he lets out this program in Boston that furloughs these prisoners. This is what he's going to do as president. So it becomes more sort of believable. And then the moment at the debate where Bernie right. Shaw of CNN asks him the infamous, would you support the death penalty if someone raped and murdered your wife? And he gave this sort of robotic answer. You got to think about those all in combination mm -hmm. as opposed to it's a one thing that did it. But all of that together suggested that this guy wasn't kind of tough enough for the job. Yeah, this idea that he doesn't feel the way that we feel, um, and that mm. leads him to be, in the case of the Willie Horton ad, soft on crime. But also, I mean, there's some race baiting in there as well, right? Like, it's, he doesn't understand the fears of white people and that he's going to be too compassionate to criminals, um, which was coded as black in the case of the Willie Horton ad. And so I, I like what you're saying, Amy, about the way that all of these things flowed together to create a single image of Dukakis as too weak to defend America, but also too weak to defend your family. Mm. And that was an incredibly powerful way of defining Dukakis. And I think that reflects in those numbers, right? A 25-point swing is pretty dramatic. And it, it speaks to how effective those attacks were. Uh, yeah. it, is, it is remarkable to think of the Willie Horton ad, which I think for generations was thought of as kind of like the high watermark or the, the low watermark for race baiting in politics. And now just feels like, you know, every <laughs> ad basically hits those notes. Um, but yes, it is important to remember that. And Amy, to your point about kind of, you know, this is what's frustrating about political science. A lot of times it's really hard to disentangle these things. And the stuff that works is often because it's working in concert with other things. There was some polling um, around election day where 25% of respondents said they were less likely to vote for Dukakis because of the tank ride. And that's just a piece of polling where I'm like, I don't think so. Like, that seems like a justification for a much more complicated sort of series of decisions. I try and keep it in mind all the time that, like, polling could be really tricky sometimes. And, and a poll like that is probably has a lot more going on behind it. Yeah. But you know what else, Jody? I think in 1988, the idea that some image could catch on and become yeah. a meme um, mm -hmm. and, and that one meme could live on for so yeah. long is a reminder of what it was like to live pre-internet. <laughs> My son is obsessed with like internet memes. And mm -hmm. the other day I sent him one that I thought was hilarious. He's like, uh, mom, that's a dead meme. And I was like, it's from a week ago. Yeah, He's yeah. like, yeah, it's already <laughs> over. Like you're so out of it. Um, so, you know, this was the era of where's the beef and all of that. I mean, those things were seared into our brains as a, a kid of the 70s and 80s like i still remember certain jingles and commercials and things like that that everybody knew everybody knew now we are so segmented in the way that we get our information that again i'm the loser mom because i'm sending out a meme that's no longer cool but you are getting bombarded with ten thousand things right now jody that i may never see and so the idea of having sort of a national moment uh, is getting harder and harder. Right. It's not that those 
that an image can't still matter right now. Right. It's just that you have no idea which one it's going to be. And the image for one person may be something that you've never even seen, as you were describing. And I think that's yeah. probably very frustrating for a lot of campaigns and certainly for a lot of citizens <laughs> who, right. care about, who care about right. the way we do politics in this country. Um, all right. Well, that's a good place to end it. So, Amy Walter, thank you so much for doing this. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Jody. Yeah. And good luck over the coming weeks uh, with the Cook Political Report and the Friday edition of The Takeaway on Politics. Nicole Hammer, thanks to you as always as well. Thank you, Jody. This Day in Esoteric Political History is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX. Our researcher and producer is Jacob Feldman. Our producer is Brittany Brown. Follow us on social media. We are posting on Twitter and Instagram every day. Some moments that we don't get to on the show. You can find those at This Day Pod on Twitter and Instagram. My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon. Bukakos opposed the stealth bomber ground emergency warning system against nuclear attack. He even criticized our rescue mission to Grenada and our strike on Libya. And now he wants to be our commander-in-chief. America can't afford that risk. It is, as you may have heard, an election year. But do you feel like you have a lot of choices? Here are the new candidates, same as the old candidates. How did we get here again? The fact is, our democracy is broken. We can all feel it, and there's data to back it up, too. A Princeton University study found that public opinion has near zero impact on what laws are passed. You know what does have an impact, though? Money! You can call it lobbying, you can call it super PAC spending, you can call it corruption. But luckily, there are things we can do right now to fix this broken system. This podcast is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition, a group that's banding together to make our democracy better. We're working with Represent Us, the largest grassroots organization fighting to end corruption city by city and state by state. You can join the movement too. Go to represent.us slash podcast to find out more. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.